There we go. Good morning. I'm going to do my uh, best uh, John Rivers 20 The Countdown magazine uh, impression today with the voice. Uh, the Dayquil is doing its work and we will get through this together. It should be a good morning. Um, there is Children's Church. I'm getting waved at. I would have gotten there. There's Children's Church today. Uh, so anyone between the ages of two and six can uh, head on downstairs for that. Let's open up in prayer. God, as we continue to walk into this Christmas story, as we recognize the gift of Christmas, as we recognize the way that you are bringing us close to you, the effort that you're willing to go to, the things that you're willing to do in order to make a way for us, coming down to earth, being born, living here, giving us an example through your life, dying and rising again, conquering death. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for Christmas, for what it means and what it represents. As we continue through this Advent series on waiting, uh, help us to understand how to wait well. Help us to truly grasp what it is that you have done for us in the way that it changes our lives, changes our understanding of waiting, changes our understanding of hope. In your name, amen. So the scripture that was read today uh, was from Luke, Luke chapter 2, which I would guess is the most widely read uh, version of the Christmas story at family gatherings and things like that. These are deeply familiar words uh, to many of us. And when I was younger, uh, I remember being a little bit confused. It always felt unnecessary or, 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 or kind of silly that there would be four different versions of the same story in the Bible, that there would be these four gospels at the beginning that are all sort of talking about the same things um, that the New Testament had these four books. Why do we need four retellings uh, of the same story? And I also wondered why this one got the most airtime, why Luke 2 became uh, maybe the most popular version of the Christmas story. I remember as a 12-year-old uh, being asked to read at my family gathering, to read the Christmas story. And at that point, I hadn't paid much attention to where the story came from. In the Bible, I just knew the Christmas story must be at the beginning of the Gospels. Creation is the first chapter of the Old Testament. Jesus' birth must be the first chapter of the New Testament. And so I pick up my Bible and I turn to the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, and I started reading. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David and Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob... the and, and I stopped, this, this didn't seem right. I started to panic a little bit. Wasn't there a governor of some place here? And so I, I skimmed ahead and I kind of looked and I got down to verse 18 and verse 18 seemed promising and I continued, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph and as I read it through, uh, it still wasn't quite right. It was, it was a story, but it, it was focused on Joseph and all the angels appearing to Joseph and how Joseph was in David's lineage and how Joseph did what the angel commanded and how Joseph gave this boy uh, the name Jesus. And I finished reading and sat there confused. How could this story be so different than the one that I remembered hearing all these years? Did I read it wrong or what had happened? Um, but as you get to know these books, these Gospels, I think you begin to understand more and more that each of these authors, that each of the people, uh, the writers of these Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, intentionally approach things from a different direction, with a different angle or intention, 
Uh, in fact, the first thing that you'll learn if you ever take a course on the New Testament is that these Gospels were written to different audiences. So Matthew wrote to the Jews, and he sort of spoke their language. He references the Old Testament heavily. He ties Jesus in very intentionally with Old Testament prophecy, and that's why it was so important to have the line of David spelled out and the lineage through the Father, which would have been uh, important to people at that time, and, and to put the priority on the Father's acceptance of this child and his role in the raising and the naming of this boy. And, and Mark wrote to the Romans, and John wrote to uh, second-generation Christians or more mature Christians who are dealing with some of the deeper ideas or meaning or symbolism behind who Jesus was and what he came to do. Uh, but Luke is interesting. Luke was maybe the most systematic uh, of the writers, and he actually begins at the beginning of his book, and he makes his intentions very clear about what he's trying to do with his gospel, with his letter. He says in Luke chapter 1, that many have undertaken to drop an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And so Luke is writing to this guy, Theophilus, an orderly account, a systematic look at the life of Jesus, which is supported and corroborated and, and, and held up by key eyewitnesses based on Luke's own investigation. So unlike John, Luke wasn't an apostle. Uh, instead, he's more like a, a journalist going around and collecting stories from those who knew Jesus best. And when you read the book, it seems pretty clear that one of those eyewitness accounts was Mary, the mother of Jesus. He has all sorts of information about Jesus' birth that none of the other gospel writers get into. And, and Luke is the only gospel that spends any time talking about personal stories of Jesus as a child, the story of Jesus getting lost in the temple. Uh, and these things are all told very much from the perspective of Mary. The key verse, maybe the strongest argument um, that most Bible scholars will point to is at the end of this nativity story, it was just read for us in Luke 2 verse 19, where Luke says, and Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. So how would Luke have known that? It makes sense that he could have understood what happened there, but how could he have had access to the inner thoughts of Mary, how Mary felt about these things? And the simplest answer, and the answer that many people who study the New Testament and the Gospels get to, is that Luke had the opportunity to speak to Mary face-to-face -face about this time. And so what's really special about the version of the story in Luke 2 is that we're getting a record of Mary's own thoughts and feelings and experiences as Luke records them. There is this intimate and personal and direct connection to the things that happened to that night and I imagine that's a big part of why the Gospel of Luke is maybe the most common or the most typical or the most familiar uh, of nativity stories, because it is a personal story. It gives you a glimpse into the heart of the thing and the feelings behind it. And it, and, it, and it feels right to center in on Mary. She went through a unique journey that no one else, not Joseph or the shepherds or the wise men, uh, not even her cousin Elizabeth, who was pregnant at the same time, could totally understand. So, so what a gift it is to have this sort of insight or understanding uh, into her feelings and her thoughts during this time. And this Advent, we've been talking a lot about feelings. 
and how we feel at Christmas and what's going on in our hearts. And we sort of recognized that Christmas for many of us is far from a picture-perfect holiday. Uh, it can be a time where negative emotions, uh, where tough family situations, where the loss of loved ones uh, stings more uh, and are felt more deeply, where our insecurities or anxieties uh, or difficulties are sort of brought to the forefront. And so we've recognized that. And we've looked at these ladies, these bridesmaids who wait with their lanterns for the bridegroom to pick them up for the wedding, who shine a light into the darkness, who wait in the night with hope for what is to come. And we've looked at Isaiah, who several hundred years before Jesus predicted the birth of the one who would bring light to the darkness. And we've looked at John the Baptist, who made the way ready for Jesus, who was a voice in the wilderness preparing people, who was a man who pointed at this light and recognized what was coming. And through these things, we've sort of been walking closer and closer to the Christmas story. And today we find ourselves right in the middle of it, right in the story with Mary. And as we talk about Mary, what we're going to be talking about today is pregnancy. And pregnancy is a tough thing for me to be up here talking about. Um, it's something that I approach with care uh, for a few reasons. And I actually wanted to just quickly address those before moving on to the rest of the message. Uh, so the first reason is this. Um, I am never going to be pregnant. No. Thanks, Joan. Yeah. For confirming. I, I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Uh, pregnancy is something that I can only experience or understand or talk about on a second-hand basis. Uh, pregnancy has pretty dramatically changed my life, obviously. I was pretty heavily involved in a pregnancy about 31 years ago. Um, <laughs> this is a very supportive front row here. Uh, and now, with my own family, of course, I've walked beside Aaron for that journey as we started a family together. Uh, but it's not something that's ever going to happen to me or that I will ever totally understand. And that leads into a broader issue, uh, which is that there's a lot of tension right now in the world regarding men making statements or assumptions about women's experiences. And it's important to acknowledge that there is a legitimacy behind that anger, behind that frustration. When I look at the way that Jesus treated women, consistently elevating and respecting and listening to and dialoguing with as equals, uh, I recognize uh, that the world and that church leadership uh, has often failed to live up to those standards that have been set for us. There's been mistakes there, and so it's an area where I want to be very careful. Uh, and the second reason is this. It's a topic that can be filled with a lot of hurt and pain. There are a lot of different journeys uh, represented here. Lots of different emotions and feelings come up when pregnancy is talked about. Uh, and I recognize that it can be, in a, in a special way, a difficult thing to process or engage with, uh, depending on the journey that you have walked or are walking. Uh, Aaron and I, many of you know, uh, have certainly walked our own journey uh, that left us uh, for many years in a place where it was a difficult or painful thing to bring up. So I want to acknowledge the journeys that are represented here, and we've prayed about some of those today already. So with that in mind, I want to sort of gently step into this journey with you. Because as I have thought about Mary this week, especially in the context of waiting, her journey here and, and, and the idea of pregnancy general so perfectly captures, I think, so much of what it means to wait here in this life. What it can look like or how it can feel to wait. 
And biblical writers actually fairly often speak about pregnancy or labor or birth and rebirth as tools or analogies to help explore our relationship with God and our hope for Jesus' return. Um, I remember the surrealness towards the end of the time when Aaron was due with Sebastian and recognizing that at this point our entire lives had changed and yet somehow everything was still the same. I mean, things had changed, but there was no nursing or diaper changes or rocking or bouncing or dressing or baby gates. Our lives still looked relatively similar, and yet this change had been set in motion. And more than that, there was actually this entire other human being there in the room with their own thoughts and feelings and personality right there beside me, just separated by a layer of skin. And, 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 and that so perfectly captures to me part of what it means to live in this in-between that we sometimes call it, the now and not yet, this place where Jesus has conquered death and sin, but that victory isn't fully realized. There's still brokenness around. There's these themes that we have been looking at. Jesus is fully here, and yet somehow there is still this disconnect or this confusion or this doubt or this lack of clarity that we wrestle with. In, in the message translation of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, Paul says, we don't yet see things clearly. We're squinting in a fog. We're peering through a mist. And so with our time today, what I want to do is explore uh, five uh, quick points or sort of simple truths that Mary's journey uh, and the sort of waiting that occurs uh, during pregnancy can teach us. So the first is this, uh, Advent waiting drives change. Sometimes we hear the word waiting and we think it's a passive thing. We think of somebody sitting back and twiddling their thumbs, tapping their toes, and, and, and we can get trapped into thinking that this is what God calls us to when he talks about waiting, to just sort of be frozen until he moves or until he works. And God does call us to slow down, and God calls us to recognize his control of the situation, and God calls us to trust, but it's not the same thing as being passive, as just sort of sitting there like life is a bus stop and, and, and waiting for the right thing to come along. When I, was, when I was younger in my youth growing up, I, I think it was taught quite strongly uh, in my youth group and around, I feel like I read lots of books on this, this idea that God has one perfect plan for your life. It especially came up when talking about dating uh, or marriage, this idea that there's this one perfect direction that you should be taking, this one perfect person that you're going to meet, you have a soulmate out there somewhere. And for me, uh, at my time in life, it applied to that dating question, and it also applied to things like what major should I be taking at university or these sorts of things. It was this sort of, there was this tension or this anxiety within me that if somehow I missed it, if I wasn't listening well enough, if I wasn't paying enough attention, if I wasn't making these decisions carefully enough, then I was going to miss the boat, then I was going to derail off of this railroad track of life that God had set out for me and there would be no way to get back onto it. I remember processing this with my parents, kind of wrestling and going, how do I work with this? And my mom's line, which has stuck with me, is, it's really tough to steer a parked car. It was her way of comforting me by going, it's going to be okay, and you can be active in your waiting. It's okay to make choices. It's okay to move forward, as long as you do those things with an open hand, with a willingness to listen as you move. So waiting then wasn't just a passive thing, but it was something that's accomplished on the move as you went. 
It transformed my view of how God can work in and through our lives. Uh, Paula Gooder, in her book, The Meaning is in the Waiting, which is a reflection book on Advent, she has this to say about her own pregnancy and what it taught her. She writes, As I waited for the birth of my baby, I discovered that waiting can be a nurturing time, valuable in its own right. Until then, I had assumed that waiting could only ever be passive, that it involved sitting around completely powerless to do anything until the moment of waiting passed and I could be active again. How wrong I was. The waiting of pregnancy is about as active an occupation as one can hope to engage in. Pregnant waiting is a profoundly creative act involving a slow growth to new life. This kind of waiting may appear passive externally, but internally consists of never-ending action and is a helpful analogy for the kind of waiting that Advent requires. For many of us, Advent is such a busy time with all our preparations for Christmas that the thought of stopping and sitting passively while attractive in many ways, is simply impossible. Advent, however, does not demand passivity, but the utmost activity, active internal waiting that knits together new life. When I think about discovering that we are going to have a baby, uh, that waiting was anything but passive. We read books, we baby-proofed things, we got supplies, we went to appointments, we reworked our budget, we processed our careers, we spread the news of what was happening. In our waiting, everything about our lives changed and revamped in regard and around uh, this promise that we had been given. Uh, we made space for this new thing that was coming into our lives. Our thoughts began to change. Our outlook changed. Our life plan changed because of and through and in this period of waiting, and that's how we're called to wait on God, not in a passive way or a sit back and just let everything happen to us sort of way, but in an active way, where based on the promises we've been given in Scripture, based on who God is and how he is moving and growing in our lives, we're making changes and growing and revamping our lives around this truth that we've been given. The second truth is this, Advent waiting can hurt. When the writers of the Bible looked for ways to express the pain of life, the things that hurt, or the struggles that we go through, or trials that we faced, they reached for the analogy of childbirth and labor. Uh, in the Old Testament, this pain was viewed often with a lot of negativity. No doubt those writers or prophets were thinking back to the curse on Eve as she left the garden, and thinking of labor pain as something that represented or captured the fallenness of humanity. We see verses like uh, Isaiah 13:8 that talk about the destruction of Babylon, saying they will be terrified, pains and anguish will take hold of them, they will writhe like a woman in labor. It, it's, it's ugly, difficult language. It's a very negative view on those things. But something incredible happens uh, in the New Testament with the coming of Jesus, with the hope of salvation, with this light that comes into the world. We begin to see labor talked about in a totally different way. Uh, Jesus himself says in John 16, when he's comforting his disciples, he says, whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and no one will take your joy away from you. So there's a sense that labor pain isn't needless or empty hurt. It's building towards something. It's a pain that's going to bring about something wonderful. It has inside of it 
a hope or an anticipation or a promise that the hurt that we feel is not in vain, that God is working these things together. When I think about labor in the New Testament as an analogy, uh, my mind immediately jumps uh, to Romans 8, this powerful passage on on what it means to live in the Spirit, what it means to exist in this in-between, what it looks like to wait. And Paul writes, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruit of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Life hurts. It just does. Physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, we experience pain. We live with it. Our bodies don't work the way that they're supposed to. Things break down. I remember seeing someone post on Facebook that getting old is when you get your head together just in time for your body to start falling apart. (laughs) But that's not the end of the story because Advent waiting is filled with hope. Labor pains are worth it because of what happens at the end. The passage in Romans 8 continues this way, for in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. For who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And some translations say there, we wait for it expectantly. We have hope because we know what is coming. We can't see it just yet. But our efforts and our our labor are driving towards this thing that we hope for. And pregnancy itself, the word is synonymous with expectant waiting. There's even that term that you hear sometimes, a, a pregnant pause. And a pregnant pause is one that's filled with possibility or anticipation. It's, it's a sense that there's more coming after this. That everyone's kind of leaning forward in the moment to catch what's going to happen next. Romans 8 says that creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. There's this bated breath. It's the sort of waiting that Darren talked about last week in his tree lighting analogy. Hearing that countdown, understanding that the light is coming. It's a, it's a sort of waiting of a kid on Christmas morning. Something good is going to happen here. God is working and things are growing and changing behind the scenes. James puts it like this in, in chapter 4, verse 8. He says, Be patient then, brother and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains, or, you know, fall snows, <laughs> some of us this year. Uh, you too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. So there's this time when things are moving and working below the surface, things that you don't necessarily see yet, but there's this anticipation and promise of new life. God is working behind the scenes David is captured with this idea of new life being created when he says, you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. And Advent waiting, the sort of waiting that we see in Mary, is one that recognizes the active hand of God knitting things together underneath it all, creating new life and new joy and new hope as we wait patiently and more than that, as we wait expectantly, as we wait with hope. My last point is that Advent waiting happens with God inside of us. Finally, just like Mary, we do not wait alone. Just like Mary, we have God living inside of us. We have the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit in our bodies. 
uh, the Hebrew word that gets used often in the Bible for waiting, especially in the Psalms, is it's kava. And we find it often when David is talking about waiting on the Lord. But something really interesting about this word, this kava, is that it's got more than one definition. There's a few extra things tied into it. It's, it means to wait eagerly, but it also has this idea of binding together like a rope being made. It's this sense of closeness or connectedness or drawing together uh, or binding. It's the word that David uses in Psalm 25 verse 5 when he says, lead me in your truth and teach me for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. And in Psalm 52 9 where he says, I will give you thanks forever because you have done it and I will wait on your name for it is good in the presence of your godly ones. It is a connected waiting. It's a close waiting. And we have something more than even David, a man after God's own heart, did because we have access to God and a closeness to God that was made possible through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, through the releasing of God's presence through the Holy Spirit. Mary's story is relevant to us in a special way because we share a special bond with her. Uh, theologians and church leaders have, have marveled and kind of wondered over this uh, for centuries. Uh, Meister Eckhart, who's a 14th century monk, was captured by this idea. It's almost all he could think about or talk about or write about. This idea of the presence of God inside of us and the way that it changes us and builds us into new creations. The idea of God living in us. And in one of his musings, this is what he said. He said, we are all meant to be mothers of God. What good is it to me if the eternal birth of the divine son takes place unceasingly but does not take place within myself? And what good is it to me if Mary is full of grace, if I am not also full of grace? And what good is it to me for the creator to give birth to his son, if I also do not give birth to him in my time and my culture? This, then, is the fullness of time when the Son of God is begotten in us. So, what he's getting at there is that we as the church, we as God's chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, have been tasked, have been called to bring God into the world with shining lights in the darkness. We have God inside of us, pushing us on to growth and maturity and change, creating in us a, in, in us a new person and calling us to be light in the darkness. Waiting, then, is not a futile effort. It is not passive. It is not boring. It's not something where we sit on the sidelines and, and, and hope that something will change. According to Scripture, waiting drives change within us. Waiting will bring us through seasons of doubt and uncertainty and pain, but it is always anchored in the promise of a God who came down to us, who made a way when there was no way, who so loved the world that he gave his only son. And so we wait with that hope. And God waits in us and with us. And in this sort of magical time of year at Advent, we wait in three times at once. We have this opportunity to sort of step back into eternity with God and see in all directions at the same time. And we wait as we look back to the past where Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is born to earth. And we wait as we look to the future where we see him returning triumphant. And then we recognize it in our own way here in the present 
We are called to be merry. We are called to ponder these things in our own hearts and to trust and to grow and to bring forth the Messiah into our own time and culture. So Merry Christmas and amen.